Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Thursday, January 4th, and I gotta say, I am just really getting into what I call the January gloom. I don't know. It's just that, again, I mean, I've talked about this a myriad of different times, but you just feel like after all the excess and holidays and social chaos and everything, it's just kind of weird when everything seems to just slow down and you're kind of getting out of that metaphorical December hangover, or maybe literal December hangover. And thank God for my runs, because those are one of the only times a day that I really can just get some clarity, get out, get moving, think about something different. So those have been really helpful. Unfortunately, today, though, on my run, uh, the big thing I was going to do for this year was try a month or two being a pescatarian and see how I feel. And I was, what, three days in, and then today on the fourth day of January, I was on my run, and I started thinking about chicken enchiladas, and I'm going the Rayleigh's near where I work has pretty good chicken enchiladas. And so by about seven and a half miles, so almost done with the run, I'm like, you know what, fuck it. Where I'm just going to go get some enchiladas. So just like that, my January resolution is over. And as cor- and of course, as you guys know, January is the only time of the year. January 1st is the only time of the year that you can start a new trend or do a resolution. January is the only time to do it. So if you fail in January, you have to wait till next January. So I will wait a year to do this pescatarian thing again. Of course, I'm kidding. I, I'll probably try again in a few days or whatever, once I get my fix of chicken. But yeah, interesting times. But hey, I'm sitting here, got the got the nuggets and the warriors on in the background. And I want to talk about a few different things today. I want to talk about the New York Times filing a lawsuit against Microsoft and OpenAI. And what I think it tells us about kind of the conflict we're seeing between publishing journalism, and and of course, um, artificial intelligence. So I will probably rant about that. Also, kind of talk about why I am not for just kind of the trend of where everything's going. I also want to talk about this so-called Epstein Island list. Basically, the Internet's all freaking out because a court has ordered the release of documents involving different lawsuits against Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. I want to debunk a lot of it. Doesn't look like Stephen Hawking's was there. There's not really any new names being leaked. We've known all of this for a long time. So I want to talk about all of that as well. But first, I guess we should start with a little update from the things I talked about yesterday. So I'm not going to focus on the Middle East quite as much today because obviously that was what we talked about yesterday. But I did just want to start with a few updates from the headlines and the topics I covered. So first, it looks like I was right about, first off, Israel not doing the attack in Iran though it does seem like there were a lot of commentators that were going, they were really hoping that Israel did it because it would just help the case against Israel grow. Anyways, it looks like the Islamic State, you know, the group sometimes known as ISIS in the past, they have claimed responsibility for it. And as I talked about yesterday, the Islamic State is a Sunni group, longtime enemy of Iran, and, you know, Qassam Soleimani, who they were celebrating his life yesterday, the people that were bombed, this was a guy who fought groups like ISIS overseas. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard, sorry, a remnant of the revolution in the 70s and I guess almost 80, it's 
it's a complicated group, but it, it was all over the Middle East, and it was an enemy of ISIS. So this is really not surprising to me. And I was watching some YouTube videos last night while I was shaving and getting ready for bed, and there were there's so many left-wing commentators that just really wanted to blame Israel and thought it was obvious that Israel did it. And I was telling you guys yesterday, like it would just be a pointless gesture for Israel to do it. You can you can think what Israel's doing in Gaza is wrong, which I do, but you can also say it would just be pointless for Israel to bomb this festival or this celebration of life in Iran. And ISIS just makes more sense. Now, of course, we have another we have another volatile situation growing in the Middle East as well. Apparently, American forces have also conducted a raid in Iraq near Baghdad, and it killed the commander of one of these Iranian-backed militias. So we we have more death, and even since I recorded about 24 hours ago, we have just more, more, more inflection points growing here, and this is just to remind everybody about how volatile everything is in the area. And I guess the question here is, when does the United States accidentally get involved directly with Iran or vice versa. Because that's what I never like about these proxy wars where there's a lot of known unknowns and you have the fog of war and you have this tinderbox that is slowly going out of control. You just don't know when eventually the two sides actually meet head to head accidentally. I mean, back in the day, I thought the crisis that was really going to break out was Syria because, well, well, actually even Libya as well, because you had Turkey, Russia, and the United States all backing different militant groups inside of Libya. And so there were always just worries that eventually you would have, you know, a, like a, a Blackwater fighter kill a Wagner fighter. And I'm sure it did happen, but then you just wonder when these proxy wars turn into accidental killings by countries that don't really want to go to war with each other. And I mean, in Syria, you had the Kurds, you had the Turks, or the Turkish, you had the United States, you had the Wagner group backing Assad's forces. I mean, these, these situations get so complicated, and we're just seeing another one of those, except this one is just super fired up because you also now have Israel involved just doing a human rights violation up the yin-yang inside of Gaza as well. And then you also have trade involved with the Red Sea. So yes, I'm not going to reiterate too much more than that. But as you guys know, it's not good. Before we get into the New York Times and OpenAI, I do want to briefly talk about Chris Christie. Again, I even think he's delusional to be in this race because I think he's pulling at 3% as of now. So it's probably safe to say Iowa is not going to be his coming out party as a champion. But we are starting to see why he hasn't dropped out. People, myself included for a while, were just like, he should drop out, endorse Nikki Haley. Over the last, what, week, week and a half, I think we've just seen Nikki Haley, who I've seen constantly grow in reports, vindicating what I said about three weeks ago, which is that I would not be surprised if Nikki Haley accepted Trump's vice presidential role. Why else is she being so quiet, not really criticizing Trump? Why is he not criticizing her is the bigger question. A, she probably wants to run in 2028 and doesn't want to ruffle the MAGA base too far. But second, I think she also would be fine with going into the Trump administration again. She's a striver. Her moral backbone is, let's just say she has scoliosis would be the best way I would put it. And I think Chris Christie's identified this and that's why he's staying in the race because he's like, yo, if this gal was actually standing up for this, if she said she wouldn't pardon Trump, which she has said, as I talked about, then I think he would drop out. But right now he he's on a crusade. 
He's not going to win, but I respect him for staying in and just going on this moral crusade to just try to stand up to the craziness. And so anyways, he's on The View. By the way, you know, I'm sure Ron DeSantis would pardon Trump. Nikki Haley has said she would. Vivek Ramaswamy, no doubt, would pardon Trump. And he was on The View, Chris Christie, and he said what I think is important to important to his cause and important for him being in the race. Like, he, he talks about how he was the governor of New Jersey. He pardoned people, but they need to show remorse and accountability for what they did. And he's like, Trump is never going to do that. So let me just play the clip. I think Quite it's really frankly, good. For the country's sake, and that's the biggest reason I got in the race, was, you know, I had a, as you'll remember, I had a very comfortable spot here at ABC, and I didn't need to leave there um, and do this. But as I looked at the way the race was coming together and the field came together, my sense was no one was going to tell the truth about him in our party who was running for president. And then I go to the first debate, and it turns out I was right. Because all of them raised their hand and said they'd support him if he was a convicted felon. They also said that they would pardon him. Yeah, well, if I they mean, became that, president, Nikki look, Haley and uh, DeSantis both said that. Yeah. If you became president, no. would you pardon him? No, 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 and, no. And, 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 and the, the reason is because one of the things, as a governor, I, I issued pardons. And one of the things you have to do is look at the person. The person has to accept responsibility for what they did. Do you think Donald Trump will ever accept no. responsibility no. for anything he did? It'd be really the easiest pardon decision I would ever have to make as president. You don't accept responsibility, too bad, go to jail. And, and I think the other thing about what both Nikki and Ron are doing right now is this isn't about this race. This is about 2028. Neither one of them are going after Donald Trump. They're not running against him. What they're trying to do is do the best they can to come in second. And then in 28, they wouldn't have offended any of Trump's voters. And when he's gone, either because he's done with the second term or because he's lost again, then, right, or in prison, or in they, prison. They, they can go back to those voters and say, I never said anything bad about Donald Trump. Yeah. This is the most cynical type of politics. Well, yeah, cynical politics is true. But have you guys heard of the idea of the Potomkin village? Basically, there was a guy, Grigory Potomkin. He served in the Russian army. This is back in, like, I think the late 1700s, if I recall correctly. And he was one of the lovers of Catherine the Great, Empress Catherine the Great of Russia. And he was a pretty successful guy in conquering agriculture lands in the Crimean area, um, also to the Ottoman Empire, basically. And he wanted to colonize all of this area, but his budget fell short. And, you know, he wanted to impress the Empress, Catherine. And he needed to save face and build his reputation. And so I don't know if this is really legend or fact anymore, but it's just become kind of a term in politics and economics. And basically, the legend goes that he arranged basically to build fake pasteboard villages, compete with like waving happy people. They moved peasants from central Russia, herds of animals. And so Catherine the Great would arrive and she would be greeted by these people and see the villages in the distance. And basically the Potomkin village created the appearance of a prosperous and happy population when in reality it was hiding <laughs> basically the failures of conquest and colonization. And <laughs> of course, historians don't think these events ever took place. But that's besides the point. Basically, the Potomkin Village is a construction whose purpose is to provide a facade, right? It's, it's basically a fabricated reality to basically hide people from an undesirable reality. 
And in this case, you know, I think Chris Christie brings up very well that this is a Potomkin campaign. This is a Potomkin primary because people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, they don't want to win. They're not playing to win. They, they can't even talk about Trump half the time. And the RNC and the media and the conservative establishment has put up a Potomkin village to basically try to show the people that this is actually a democratic process going on, when in reality, these people are all battling for scraps while Trump is dominating them. And Christie identifies that. He's like, these people don't want to beat Trump. They just want to save face for when Trump's finally gone. And yeah, this is really a Potomkin primary. That's a good name for the podcast. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll call this episode something like that. But, you know, Chris Christie is here to tell the truth. He's not going to go far. He didn't even make the debate, the, I guess, last debate, we could say, which is happening next week. But I'm glad to see him still in it. So I guess that's the best we're going to get here. And I guess, I mean, as I really think about it, <laughs> in a sense, the entire Republican establishment and just the entire Trump years is kind of a, a Tompkin party in general. Look, look, playing on words here again. But yeah, it, it is troubling. It is troubling. So anyways, I want to move on and talk about the New York Times and OpenAI. So this is definitely different from our usual coverage, but I think it's important in kind of the tech policy world. And it's just kind of interesting involving basically labor, labor dynamics, workforce dynamics, pop culture, politics in a sense, because this will definitely be a hot topic probably in the next upcoming midterm elections, I would imagine. But basically what I'm talking about is the New York Times becoming the first big media company that is filing a lawsuit against Microsoft and OpenAI. Admittedly, at the time of this recording, I actually don't have the specifics of what the New York Times are actually trying to get in damages from OpenAI and Microsoft, but basically the New York Times is alleging that OpenAI slash Microsoft, in this case, they're kind of joint suing them or filing a lawsuit against them. It's alleging that they are unlawfully using the newspaper's content to build chatbots. And this allowed the company to basically, in quotes, free ride on journalism. From my understanding, what is happening here is that say you type in some sort of political or recent event question, well, actually, I guess not too recent, but something over the last decade, and you type into ChatGBT and ask it to answer it, it might pull up information from the New York Times, but the New York Times relies on visits to its webpage for revenue. And instead of people actually going to its website, which helps them gain revenue, instead, ChatGBT is basically like copying and pasting information into its own chatbot to give information that the New York Times created. So it's, I don't really want to say it's plagiarizing, but it's basically taking their content without giving them any views on their actual page where the content was created. And so the Associated Press has a good piece about this. It says here in quotes, the Times says the companies are threatening its livelihood by effectively stealing billions of dollars worth of work by its journalists, in some cases spitting out Times' material verbatim to people who seek answers from generative artificial intelligence like um, OpenAI's ChatGBT. And, and just some background, the New York Times lawsuit was filed at a federal court in Manhattan. And it's interesting because a spokesperson for OpenAI said that they thought the New York Times and OpenAI were having a pretty productive conversation about how to fix this. And apparently that's gone downhill quite quickly because 
The AP does report that this appears to be happening because there was a breakdown in talks between Microsoft, the New York Times, and OpenAI. And I think we just have to remember here that basically journalism and the media have already been hit hard by basically the online revolution, independent media. People are already migrating from printed press to online platforms. So up the front here before I continue talking, I think part of this this um, section I'm talking on here, this segment, part of it is about, I think, the threat AI has to journalism. But I think it's also about the idea that journalists and companies like the New York Times also feel threatened by organizations like OpenAI because they are the ones that are going to lose. Back in the day, we assumed that <laughs> writers and philosophers and poets were going to be the ones saved from artificial intelligence. We assumed it was going to be the blue-collar factory workers, the production line people, that were going to be hit first by automation and artificial intelligence. But as we're seeing, and it's happened quite, quite abruptly over the last year or so, we are seeing that <laughs> AI is actually coming for the creative jobs, like the actors, like the writers, like the journalists. And so that's why we saw the Hollywood strikes, right? The Actors Guild strike, because they didn't want the like likeness sorry, of Idris Elba to be everywhere when he's not actually doing it. And I think there's a conversation to be had about that in both directions. But for the sake of this podcast right now and for what we're talking about, it is kind of the intelligentsia that is being impacted by this. So, of course, it's not surprising to me that the New York Times is filing this lawsuit. I think the New York Times is probably more correct in this, but they also have a bias in this because it is them that it is disrupting their industry. No doubt about it. So anyways, the New York Times has done better than most because of its cooking platforms. What is it? Wordle or whatever that thing's called. And it's carved out a pretty good digital space for itself, but just the rapid growth of AI could upend its online industry as well. And as I alluded to earlier, web traffic is super important for the New York Times advertising revenue, and it's what drives subscriptions to its online site. As you guys are probably aware, I do a lot of research for this podcast, and I don't subscribe to the New York Times, and it does get annoying when you want to read the article, you've ran out of your free articles, so you have to subscribe. And in the past, I have subscribed and paid, you know, the entry trial fee just because I'm like, well, fuck, I want to read this article and they, or, or, or like they broke the story. You're already on the website. You're like, well, I guess I'll just do this. So it's good for them. But what's happening now is AI chatbots are diverting that traffic away from the paper and making it less likely that users will actually visit the source material for the information, which means the New York times might lose out on someone subscribing. They're going to lose out on web traffic. And so they're losing money. Again, this is not really plagiarism. I don't really know what this is called because it's it's fairly new. But to be fair, again, just because I want to be devil's advocate on a few of these issues, I think this is a bigger trend than just the New York Times and just them losing out on potential earnings. In reality, AI is probably going to be here to stay and it is disrupting this industry. So the New York Times has a stake, or a stake, geez, I can't speak today. It has a stake in trying to stop this. So, of course, that is obvious to me. And, I mean, of course, the AP talks about how this spokesperson for OpenAI 
did say in a prepared statement that the company respects the rights of creators and it's committing to working with them and it wants them to benefit from the technology and new revenue models. And I'm assuming they're not being totally honest here because they were working together on this back in April and something kind of changed, must have fallen through because usually you don't file a lawsuit if things are going well. Now there's a gal, Sarah Kreps, director of Cornell University's Tech Policy Institute. And she said she agrees that the New York Times is facing a threat from these chatbots. But I think she does bring up the gray area, the nuance, the complexity of this, because she also talks about how solving the issue completely is going to be an uphill battle because there are just so many language models out there. And there's going to be more. And I think as we see more private companies jump into this, it's going to be the Wild West. And I've heard people that know more about this than me call this era kind of the Wild West. Kind of like how the internet was in the late 90s before all the regulation. You know, the pendulum just kind of goes back and forth on this. And right now we're in the Wild West part of OpenAI, which I don't like. But at the same time, it's, it's sort of inevitable because that's just how things go. You go from decentralization to regulation through centralization. You go, th- you go from no limitations to full limitations, and then it all kind of offsets. But anyways, back to the lawsuit, because I keep getting distracted. I'm distracting myself. This lawsuit that was filed, it, it talks about the one main story, which because I, I just want to give an example of why the New York Times is angry at OpenAI's chat GBT4. Basically, a, according to them, allegedly... It spit out portions of news articles, such as one, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning investigation into the New York City's taxi industry that took 18 months to complete. And basically, it just went through all of this and cited verbatim excerpts from the Times article. And the Times are like, hey, we put a lot of time and money into this, and we're not getting any credit for it. So... Maybe on one side you could say everything's just changing and this is the new reality and yeah, organizations like the New York Times are going to step up and say, nah, 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 bro, we don't really like that too much. And there was a good Times piece I was reading prior to recording this because as you guys are probably aware, I don't want to say I'm anti like ChatGBT and these other organizations and OpenAI. I don't want to say I'm totally anti them, but I'm definitely skeptical and that's probably a generous way to put it. And this Times article I think has an interesting... um, Um, passage here that I want to read really quick. It says here in quotes, a small number of tech titans are busy designing our collective future, presenting their societal vision and specific beliefs about our humanity as the only impossible, sorry, the only possible path. Hiding behind an illusion of natural market forces, they are harnessing their wealth and influence to shape not just productization and implementation of AI technology, but also the research. And like, that's why this Wild West idea I'm not sure if I love because I think this technology is new and there needs to be international organizations, there needs to be nonprofits involved, and it should be considered more of a public good than something that can be capitalized for profits. And we're seeing all these different companies jump into it, and they're basically talking about how it's inevitable and they're just getting involved in it and it's the future. And I want to push back on that a little bit. And Timothy Schneider, who usually writes on fascism and authoritarianism, he calls this basically the politics of, of inevitability. Here's a quote from him. 
He says, this is a sense that the future is just more of the present, that there are no alternatives and therefore nothing really to be done. There is no discussion of underlying values. Facts that don't fit the narrative are disregarded. And I think that's why a lot of people like myself, people are just like, well, it's, it's, it's what's happening. It's going to make everything more efficient. It's just the way to go. And it's like, th- there's kind of a nihilism to the politics of inevitability. Nothing's inevitable. It's the people around it that make it inevitable. And it feels like the evolution of this technology is becoming inevitable. And it's kind of a manipulation of fact And it feels kind of autocratic to me in a sense of like, oh, if you stand against this, you're just denying its viability. I think I think AI can be very useful, especially for diagnosing illness, data analytics, search engines, chatbots for like local government. I was talking with someone today about that. Like if you can help people get services quicker through chatbots, great. But I think just the the idea that it's inevitable, it's going to take over everything it's going to be better. Don't question it. I don't like that nihilism because the social sciences, politics, public policy, it's all about questioning the inevitable and seeing if the inevitable is worth it. And so I, generally speaking, am actually happy that the New York Times is putting forth this lawsuit. I'm not sure what the verdict is going to be. I'm not even sure what the damages that they're asking for are going to be. But either way, I think this is somewhat good. And again, The promise of efficiency, convenience, and productivity is always going to be the argument that people say it's better for. Like, oh, they're like, well, the New York Times, it's more expensive. It takes longer. Like, OpenAI can just go through data sets and information from decades and put out stuff. But I think it's a good idea to be concerned and skeptical. And the same people that are now saying this is good are the same ones that said social media and smartphones and all this would be inevitably good. And I'm skeptical of that as well. I think generally speaking, yeah, you see a lot of growth and transparency as well, but there's always downsides. And I think it's okay to question that. And I think it's good that New York Times, one of the biggest news outlets in the United States is doing so. So we'll move on to Jeffrey Hepstein's chaos. But I I just wanted to cover this because I think it's something quite relevant that I don't talk about enough and I want to talk about more. All right. Well, if you're on X or Reddit, Specifically those, or if you listen to Joe Rogan, I haven't listened to him too much lately, but I'm sure he'll be talking about this. Basically, you've been hearing about the release of previously sealed documents from a lawsuit involving Jeffrey Epstein. And a lot of people are talking about how the roughly 60 documents that were released as of now are, you know, the smoking gun They're super important. I have to say that I think there's a lot of disinformation going on. And I think actually a lot of the revelations are going to be kind of disappointing, especially to the people that want to learn more. And I'll start at the top of this by saying that, like, this is not a defense of any of this. I am very sure that Epstein was doing a lot of illicit activities with underage people on his island. And I think he was a shitty dude. And it's troubling the amount of elites that have been associated with him. There's no doubt about that. But it seems like this this new release of all these documents, it's not really relevatory at all. And there's a good article that writes here in quotes, 
The roughly 60 documents released as of Thursday largely mention figures whose names were already known, including high-profile friends of Epstein's and victims who have spoken publicly. In fact, the judge who made the call last month to release the information said she was doing so largely because most of it is already public. And that's kind of my point here is that people think there's a lot of revelations coming out of this. I would say this is mainly just the court's putting out public information and finally releasing documents to back up what's already been public knowledge. About 250 more documents are expected to be released in the future, but so far there's a lot of online reaction to what people are seeing so far. So just to give a background here, it is the U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska that evaluated the documents and decided that they should be unsealed. And... She said in her December order that she was ordering the records released because much of the information was public, as I said earlier. But basically, the documents that are being unsealed, as the Associated Press notes in quotes here, are part of a 2015 lawsuit filed against Ghislaine Maxwell by one of Epstein's victims, Virginia Giffrey. She is one of the dozens of women who sued Epstein, saying he had abused them at his homes in Florida, New York, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and New Mexico. And just as a refresher for you guys, Jeffrey said the summer she turned 17, she was lured away from a job. She was currently working as a spa attendant at Mar-a-Lago, obviously Trump's golf course in Florida. And she was lured away to become a masseuse for Epstein. And this job involved sexual acts. She later claimed she was pressured into sex with men in Epstein's circle like Prince Andrew, that's, you know, Britain's Prince Andrew, the former New Mexico governor, Bill Richardson, George Mitchell, a former U.S. senator, and the billionaire Glenn Dubin, among others. And, of course, all these guys said this was false, blah, 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 but generally speaking, this has been an ongoing investigation for quite some time. And I guess my point here is that it talks about Bill Clinton in this, it talks about Donald Trump, Again, talks about Prince Andrew, but these, <laughs> I, I've, I mean, I've known about this since, what, 2020, 2019, and I think most of the public that's been following this has been aware of all of this, so it's really nothing new, and there's also just been false claims, and the claims have been that these documents highlight some kind of new list identifying Epstein's clients. But I would say there's a lot of misinformation, and I think people want liberal elites specifically or people part of academia to be part of this. And a lot of it has not been actually true. The Associated Press gives some examples of this. One of them is interesting. It's too bad because, again, it's my former favorite quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. And he was on the Pat McAfee show, which is on ESPN. And he wrongfully claimed that Jimmy Kimmel, you know, late night comedy host, was one of the people involved in this on the list. And that's just not true. Just, just, just not true. And Kimmel has already responded on X. And he said that he's never met Epstein and that Rogers is in quotes, reckless words, put his family in danger. And look, people have gone through these documents. He's not listed once. And to me, it seems like people just want these type of figures to fall. And I think it's more of a meta critique of our culture where <laughs> we can, A, rightfully <coughs> excuse me, think that Epstein is a POS and a monster. 
but then also try to project on who else is on the list, even when we are already aware of the main actors on the list. One example, for instance, there's been suggestions that Stephen Hawking was on the documents and was allegedly on the island. He died in 2018, as I'm sure you guys are aware. But in reality, his name appears misspelled, apparently, according to what I was reading, in a 2015 email. And the problem with this email is that Epstein sent this email proposing an award be paid to, I guess, anyone who could debunk a claim that Hawking made. So this is where the, I think the internet, the internet, geez, I can't freaking speak tonight. This is where the internet gets chaotic where, yes, Hawking's name popped up in an email, but it had nothing to do with this other stuff. Epstein wanted to discredit Hawking and people go, oh, well, his name showed up. And then you, you know, slowly circulate the story that it appeared on the list. And next thing you know, people are saying Stephen Hawking was on the island. And I think that's the toxic side of just our modern kind of decentralized internet culture. And I think my bigger take here too, which is again kind of part of I think this kind of postmodern chaos we're in, is that I think a lot of people want to hate the establishment. They want to hate the elites. And so they kind of want to see the political figures and the billionaires they don't like. They want to see them show up on this list. Because it is kind of a self-validation to them that, see, these elites are bad, they're corrupt, they're lying to us. Maybe they are lying to us, maybe they are corrupt. But when you add in this whole, like, pedophile ring and, like, Jeffrey Epstein's island, it adds a whole other level to this because I think one of the most deplorable types of people are the ones that would do this. And then also it's not lost on me that I think part of this, too, is the fixation that some in the kind of red-pilled right have with the QAnon movement, which is that liberal elites have, you know, pedophile rings, the Pizzagate type of people that think that, you know, elites like the Clintons are, some some say, feeding off of the blood of children to live forever. All of this plays into the mystery of Epstein's death and what happened to him. Did he kill himself? Did he not? To me, I think we spend a lot of time speculating on why he did this and who was with him, when in reality... This was a guy who was doing awful actions. He clearly had a ring of people around him. And I don't, I'm not surprised, unfortunately. Maybe it shows my numbness to reality that I'm not surprised. But I think, I think people want to look too deep into this to find meaning for their own ideologies and their own biases. And they're willing to just kind of suck in the disinformation, misinformation, whatever you want to call it, on this. So, yeah, give, send me the hate mail if you want on this. I, I stand firmly by this. I think Epstein is a horrible person. He, sh- he should be in prison, obviously. He was in prison when he died. One way or another, bad guy, but I think a lot of this is just getting down a rabbit hole that I don't have the time or energy to go down. So, anyways, that's going to do it for this episode. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great night and enjoy your Friday.